You turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10. You're looking at a passage there this morning, Luke 10, verses 1 through 12. Before we read, I just want to lay a, a foundation for today's message. Remember a couple things that we've been considering over the past few weeks. You know, in our world, it is peace is impossible to find when there's no point in living. When you have no purpose, and our world is desperately trying to reject our Creator, which means we are a humanity without meaning, or as Paul wrote to the Romans, that God has subjected this world to futility. So everything in this world is bound by futility. Futility meaning no meaning, meaning no purpose, no point. This world is senseless. King Solomon whom God gave unparalleled wisdom, wrote of this futility, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. (laughs) Cynical. Futility, vanity, meaninglessness, These are characteristics that mark our world, a world that's tried to throw off our our creator. Even the brilliant atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote these words. What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it now moving? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Amazing that an atheist like Nietzsche so understood the reality which we, in which we live. So Nietzsche, Solomon, Paul, they're all touching on the exact same truth that life is pointless without God. And in a pointless world, anything goes, whatever you want, because it doesn't mean anything. But because God created us in his image, with meaning built into the very fabric of our being, we cannot tolerate a pointless existence. It kills our souls. And so we make gods for ourselves, things that would give us meaning, or things that would numb the emptiness. But because they are all lies, all of these false gods are lies, it is just as meaningless. And this is how it works. This is how, as Paul writes, God has subjected our world to futility, into a pointless existence, because apart from him, it is futility. It is pointless. Yet despite the meaninglessness that humanity insists on plunging itself into, we cannot escape the knowledge of God. We can't get away from him. We looked at this a couple weeks ago in Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. It's a shocking truth that every single human knows God as God truly is. 
Now, you know, as we looked at that passage a few weeks ago, we, we realized that that doesn't mean every single human has a saving knowledge of God. Our natural knowledge of God is suppressed, it is corrupted by sin, and so we exchange the truth of God for a meaningless lie. But that's not God's plan for the world, that we would all just be lost in the empty meaninglessness of a world without him. That we wouldn't be lost into the lie. No, God's plan is to take this world and reconcile it to himself. Restoring the world to its created intention. Restoring the world to its created purpose. 1 Corinthians 5. Or sorry, 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So God is reconciling the whole world to himself through Christ. He's not abandoning it to some lie that's gripped us. And Christ has commissioned us as his ambassadors. We are new creations in Christ and we are his ambassadors. For that job, being his ambassador, he has equipped you with the very thing that will reconcile the whole world unto God. What is that thing that reconciles the world unto God? The gospel of Jesus Christ. In this sermon series, we've seen the gospel message succinctly broken into four parts. God, man, Christ, response. Hopefully you can just rattle that off of your, rattle that off of your tongue now. God, man, Christ, response. So here's the gospel. Once again, hear those four parts in it. Your creator is holy and righteous. Though he created you in his image, you are a rebellious sinner that has broken that image, and such rebellion earns his just and eternal condemnation. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for your sins and provide for you a path to forgiveness. Then he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and all you must do is repent and believe. Receive this great gift of faith. Turn to Christ with every aspect of your life. Give him your heart and you will be saved. You will be reconciled unto God. That's the message. That's the gospel message. God, man, Christ response. It's the message we all must know as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You can't say the gospel, well, you're a sorry ambassador. So we are to proclaim this gospel. And last week, we looked at the power of weaving the gospel message into our testimonies because our testimony is the clearest expression of gospel power in our lives. So we have these incredible stories that God has given to us, this amazing work he's done in us, which is a direct result of the gospel. So let's share our testimony, weaving the gospel into it, and I think it will impact people tremendously. You could say eternally. So that's our world, and that's our message. Now what happens after you share that message? Today we're going to begin thinking about what happens after you've spoken the gospel. You've shared your testimony. What's next? 
And I want you to see that the kingdom of God brings peace. I want to think about how people respond to the gospel. I want us to have categories. It's helpful for us to know what we do next after we have spoken the gospel. What do we do? What do we do with that? All right, let's read our passage. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, disciples, and sent them out ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Lord, give us understanding this morning as we consider your word and how we are to live it, how we are to follow you, how we are to be obedient ambassadors. We pray that we would walk away from this morning ready to proclaim the gospel, ready to make disciples, fearlessly and courageously. Oh God, may this happen as a result of of today's message. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Jesus is very strategic. I think there's a lot of people that like to think about Jesus just kind of carried along by the Spirit. You know, he's kind of, in a sense, making it up as he goes. Yeah, that, that's a myth. He's being so strategic right here. He's got a plan. He's plotted a course. So he plans to go to some very specific locations, right, in Galilee and in, in, in Judea. But before he goes to those places, before he visits those those towns, he sends his disciples ahead of him. Now, even though the language isn't being used here in the book of Luke, Christ is sending out these 72 disciples as his ambassadors. So it's, it's critical for us to see that wherever these ambassadors go, it is exactly where Jesus wants them to go. He is sending them to very specific locations. He's aware of the type of reception that they're about to face, but regardless, they are going to the place that Jesus wants them to go. Where they are, Christ has sent them. And he's sending them to the people, he's sending them to the people that are in that place. So similarly, wherever we are, brothers and sisters, is where God has sent us, is where Christ has placed us, He has given us to the people that are around us. They are not here for our sake. 
We are here for their sake. We have been sent to them. Do you see that? So wherever you are, work, school, your neighborhood, wherever else you might be impacting people or, or have an influence on people, Jesus sent you to them and he sent you with his message. Because ambassadors carry the message of Christ to the places that Jesus sends them on behalf of Jesus. So it couldn't be more clear, right? You're here for these people. Christ has sent you to them, and he's given you a message to say to them. Now look at the message that we are carrying that uh, we see here in Luke chapter 10. Look at verse 9. Heal the sick and say to them, say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. Well, that's quite a message. Have you ever walked up to somebody and said, just wanted you to know, the kingdom of God has come near you? You should try it sometime. So the 72 are to go out and declare that message, that the kingdom of God is near. So in what way has the kingdom of God come near I hope after going through Revelation, you know that answer. It's come near because they, the ambassadors, have arrived. Their presence is the nearness of the kingdom of God. And the implication is that later when Christ does come to those towns, those, those villages, then the kingdom of God has fully arrived. Right? So the ambassadors go. When they arrive, the kingdom of God is near. When Christ comes later, the kingdom of God has arrived. Because wherever the king goes, that's where his kingdom is. The ambassadors go ahead of Jesus, so when he arrives, the people are ready to receive the king. And thus enter into, hopefully, the kingdom of God. Now, we're reading this in Luke chapter 10, and the cross hasn't happened, nor the resurrection, nor the ascension. So when those things happen, this dynamic slightly changes. We need the gospel of grace to be fully unfurled. And so when the gospel of grace is fully unfurled through cross, resurrection, and ascension, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon men, then Christ comes to dwell in human hearts. God. In your heart. Therefore, we ambassadors, we disciples of Jesus, we have become the kingdom of God. Didn't we see that in the beginning of Revelation chapter 1? In, in worship, John is exclaiming, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest is to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in Christ, we are the kingdom of God. Revelation tells us that when we receive the gospel, we become this this living kingdom. The church, the living kingdom of God. It's an astounding reality. So how much more true is it then that as we interact with the unbelieving world, the kingdom of God has come near. And they don't need to wait for the person of Jesus in the flesh to come into their town. 
All they need is to hear the gospel. And the kingdom of God has arrived for them as they enter into it, hopefully, by faith. So where we go, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God goes. We share the gospel, which is the door through which people enter the kingdom. It's the door through which we have entered the kingdom. But notice, it's not just the nearness of the kingdom that these 72 disciples are to proclaim. There's something else they're to proclaim everywhere that they go. See this in verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. We are to declare peace. I think that's why a lot of churches, you'll hear them say, peace to you. What do you say in response? And also to you. Varieties of that. We declare peace. So it's not the kingdom of God. It's not only the kingdom of God that we are announcing and declaring, but we are announcing the coming of peace. You know, we've already considered, thought about how senseless our world is and how in all of that senselessness, the meaninglessness, there is no peace. You can't have peace without purpose. And rejection of God ruins our world. It strips us of meaning and therefore it's impossible to find peace without God. But where we go, God goes with us. The kingdom of God comes so where we go, we declare peace. Because we can be confident that the message we carry is the only way the human soul can find true and lasting peace. The only way. All the other stuff is an illusion. No amount of self-help or success or indulgence works as much as we try. We gorge ourselves, but we don't taste a thing. Truly, peace only comes through the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. And as Christ's ambassadors, we want everybody to know this peace. Not because we have a corner on the market and we're better than them, but because how good is peace? In love, we want others to know this peace. We want to share it with them. So you've been a faithful ambassador, I hope. You've carried this message. You've proclaimed the kingdom of God. You've declared peace. You've shared the gospel. God, man, Christ response. You've spoken it. Now what? You've asked, you know, part of the gospel, the the last part is response. So you've asked a person. Maybe you've asked a small group of people to respond. So the next step should be obvious, right? How are they responding? Do you, you need to discern the way in which that person is responding. Now here in Luke chapter 10, Christ gives Two fundamental ways in which people will respond to the gospel. Two very basic ways which people respond to the gospel. First, you see it in verse 10, that some people do not receive the gospel message. They don't want the gospel. And it's not just your message they reject. Likely they will reject you as well. You're going to tell me about this? I don't want to hear it, and I don't want you around. So get out of here. You proclaim peace. 
but they give you angst, frustration. And they may even persecute you. That's what Jesus tried to prepare his disciples for again and again. In John 15, we read, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they would have also kept yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Whoever hates me hates my father also. So when people reject us, reject our message, even if they persecute us, Jesus is essentially saying, don't take it personally. It's not about you. They hate Jesus. And if they hate Jesus, then they hate God. They hate their creator. And this goes right back into this the situation of our world, this world that's trying to reject their creator. And here we are coming around telling them about their creator, this inescapable reality, reminding them of it, and they hate it. They hate God. They hate Christ. They hate this gospel, so they will hate you. Don't take it personally. I think by realizing that you shouldn't take it personally is one of the best ways that you can in your heart say, Father, they know not what they do. Forgive them. How you can love your enemies even while they reject you and persecute you. Look now at verses 10 and 12 here, 10 through 12. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your, of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The gospel you've proclaimed has been rejected, as Christ is giving an example here. The gospel's been rejected, you've been rejected, and now Jesus says three things should follow that kind of rejection. First, wipe the dust off from your feet against that town. Sounds harsh. It's another way of saying, if they don't want it, let them alone. Walk away. Matthew 7, 6, Jesus says, Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Don't continue to give the gospel to somebody that rejects you and rejects you and rejects you. Stop. Jesus compares that to giving pearls to pigs. They don't understand the value of what you are saying, and they are happy to treat the gospel as if it were mud, as if it were dung. They don't want the pearls. They don't even recognize them as pearls. And if you continue to throw pearls at them, if you continue to preach the gospel to hard hearts, they may become so angry with you that they attack you, that they turn against you. Not a very strategic move. They will treat the gospel as mud and they will treat you like mud. Therefore, if they don't want Jesus and they made it clear, don't continue to offer. Turn, walk away, and spend your energy elsewhere. 
And I know that sounds harsh. But remember, Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. There is an abounding harvest. Why go beat yourself against a rock in the field when there is all this harvest? If you are rejected, fear not. There are plenty of people who are hungry for the gospel, desperate to hear the gospel from your mouth. So spend your energy looking for them. Bring to them the gospel of the kingdom of God. They want it. They want it. Looking closer at verse 11, Jesus says that even as we wipe the dust from our sandals, as we're walking away, we're to remind them a final time of the nearness of the kingdom of God. So they don't want Christ, and you say, essentially, fine. But know that the kingdom of God has come near you. It's sort of like saying, if you ever change your mind, the gospel door is open. You can still enter the kingdom of God. You could say, I'm always here to talk to. Come and find me. But fine. So those are the three things that we are to do. If they don't want to hear the gospel, we stop giving it. We turn away, too. We, we turn away and look for where the harvest is plentiful. We go there and spend our energy there, not on those who keep rejecting it. And then third, uh, Third was something I just said. Remind them once more that the kingdom was near. Now this leads us to our second fundamental response that people will have upon hearing the gospel. Some people will respond with peace. Look at verse, verses 6 through 8. And if a son, is pe- a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. If you tell someone about Jesus, if you share your testimony, you speak the gospel, and they respond with peace, then it's your peace, the peace of the kingdom of God that is resting upon them. We know that peace doesn't come from this world. It's coming from the kingdom of God if they respond with peace. Or that's another way of saying that the Holy Spirit is doing something. The Holy Spirit is working in that scenario. If somebody responds with peace to the message you are proclaiming, then something supernatural is going on. It's the Spirit at work. Jesus said in John chapter 6, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So the person who responds in peace, let's call that person the person of peace. They are the person of peace, people of peace. When you begin the ministry of reconciliation with them and they respond with peace, then you know that God Almighty is working in that heart. Jesus gives us ways we can tell if we're interacting with a person of peace. Do you see that in the verses we just read? That person responds with hospitality, with generosity. 
they're sharing their needs with you because you're aware of the needs that, or the, yeah, the needs that need to be healed. So they are hospitable, they're generous, they're sharing their needs with you. And I want to be even more practical than that. I want, to, I want to bring it into our context in our day. When is someone a person of peace? I met a person of peace over the summer. One that comes to mind. So I got to chatting with this friendly individual I didn't know at all. I've seen him around. But in the course of conversation, it very quickly turned spiritual and was just kind of endearing and warm. And I could see that this person had a hunger in their heart. And I shared a little bit of testimony about something God was doing in my life at the time. And, and the conversation was friendly and they were receptive. And, the, and then we parted ways. But since then, this same person has randomly showed up. I was working outside. They pulled into the driveway with a pizza that they just bought and gave to me so randomly. Um, they invited me and my family over to swim in their pool, which we did. And this person of peace has been nothing but hospitable and generous and warm towards us. So that means I want to do everything that I can do to obey Jesus, what he has instructed right here in chapter 10. So if they put something in front of me, I am to eat that. Pretty easy one is pizza. If they invite me into their home, I want to take them up on that. On a hot day, it's easy when it's swimming in a pool. If they express a hurt, I want to be praying for that hurt. Maybe even praying with them right there in that moment over whatever that hurt or that need is. So in other words, when we find a person of peace like this, we invest ourselves we dive in, right? We want to get into their life, not because we're forcing our way in, but because they are clearly welcoming us into their life. Don't spend your gospel energy on people who reject you. Spend it with those who warmly receive you and your message because it is Christ they are being receptive to. If they rejected you, it's not you they're rejecting, it's Christ. If they receive you, it's not you they're receiving, it's Christ. If they want Christ, let's, let's be there to offer it. Offer him. They're receptive to reconciliation with God. And you are an ambassador. A minister of reconciliation. Luke 10 gives us these two fundamental ways in which people respond to the gospel. But I'm going to get a little bit more nuanced than that. I think this is helpful for us to break down these two categories of response into a total of four categories of response. And I think you'll see why as we go through this. This is going to help us interact with people. This is going to help us in our work as ambassadors. This is going to help us know how we follow through with people or not. So there should be a traffic light up here. This is so basic, so helpful. And I couldn't help but think of this traffic like when I was talking to a person of peace over the summer. The first type of response is a red light response. You said the gospel, you get a red light. That's a hard no. Not interested. You can keep your gospel and you can get out of here. They're not interested in Christ. Now we've already seen it. Your response is... is is move on, spend your energy elsewhere, maybe once more remind them that the kingdom of God has come near. But just go look for that person of peace. But no, the red light happens because you were first 
faithful to share the gospel. It doesn't get you out of sharing the gospel. You must still proclaim the gospel. But you get your red light. Now, quick caveat here. Things are different with family and with your neighbors that you live right next to. You, you, you can't just leave them. You know, if your neighbor next door says they don't want the gospel, you don't just move. And I, I mean neighbor as in proximity, not the Good Samaritan type of neighbor. If they reject the gospel, then we don't force it down their throats if they're family or if they're neighbors. We, we love them, we do good works, we, we serve them, we pray for them, and hopefully in time gospel opportunities will open. It is a marathon. We don't just give up on family and neighbors. But in a red light situation, when you're talking to people who are maybe unfamiliar, you don't have that kind of familial or locational relationship with, you do move on to find the person of peace. And then the second type of gospel response is yellow light response. Yellow lights respond with maybe. Maybe. They might not be ready to accept Jesus. Maybe it all sounds a little bit weird to them. They're not believing everything that you're saying. They're not picking up what you're putting down. They're interested. They want to learn more. They're not pushing you away. They're curious. These are people of peace. If they are interested, they are a person of peace. And they might offer things, hospitality, generosity, their needs, their time, whatever it is they're offering, accept, invest, engage. That person is worth building a relationship with. It's your objective, ambassador, to help move them from yellow light to green light. Because the third type of response is a green light response. Green lights are a big yes. I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I repent of my sinful ways. I want to be faithful to the King. These are the green light people of peace. So these people need discipling. They need to learn what it means to follow Jesus. They need to learn how to read the Bible. Likely they have no idea. They need to understand what it means to participate in church. And God has sent you, ambassador, to that person of peace. He sent you to teach them all the things Christ has commanded. They need discipling. So green lights and yellow lights, both of these are categories of persons of peace. The fourth type of response is when someone says, I'm already a follower of Jesus. And you'll certainly hear this. When Jesus sent out the 72, there was no such thing as that yet. Now there are. You might hear somebody say, I'm already a follower of Jesus Christ. So praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. At that point, it's not a bad idea to see how you might partner with that other believer to be faithful ambassadors together. Say you find that this person is a Christian and you're both working at the same job. Christ has stationed you both at the same embassy so why don't you work together to bring the gospel to that place? Find a way to partner together. And I think in the process of you interacting with this person who says they're a follower of Christ, you might discover that they're not. They don't really understand what it means to follow Jesus. So that's an opportunity for you to open the gospel to them, to show them what it means to follow Christ and maybe lead them into the kingdom of God. So I think it's pretty clear what we should do when we encounter red lights and other Christians. 
Red lights, we go somewhere else. Other Christians, we partner with them and hopefully join in the work together. It might not be so obvious what we do with yellow lights and what we do with green lights. Invest further, disciple, I've said. It's discipling, really, in in both cases. But the type of investment in, in yellow light versus green light is very different. Next week, I want to talk about that difference. If you find a yellow light, how do you invest in that person? Somebody who's curious, somebody who wants to know more but not ready to accept Jesus. What do you do when it's a green light person and they are ready to to accept Jesus and they are obeying? So what do you do for each one of those? That's where we're going to go next week. But we live in this world attempting to throw off God, losing all sense of meaning and purpose. And in such a world, there is nowhere at all to find peace. People strive but are unable to find it. Christ has come to reconcile this world unto God, to bring meaning to human souls. So we ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we need to be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel. Regardless of response, we must proclaim. And as we do, let us be aware of how people respond. People do not want to hear about Jesus, then... There's no need to force it. If somebody says maybe or yes, then we engage further. If they say they're already a Christian, then we look for ways to partner. But the harvest is plentiful. You might seem like, who in the world do I share this with? Everyone. Right? The harvest is plentiful. So wherever we find ourselves, Christ has sent us to that corner of the field, and we are to engage, we are, to, we are sent to those people that surround us. He has given us the gospel, he has given us a testimony. These are the tools of harvest, so let us call all people everywhere to be reconciled to God. This is our role, ambassadors. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this incredibly high calling that you have given to us. You have entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, Lord, help us to be faithful to that ministry, to reconcile the world unto you. And Father, as we do engage with people, give us wisdom to know how to continue to engage them or not. How to build your kingdom. How to faithfully proclaim despite response. God, give us these these graces, and wisdom to do it. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.